It's almost like the police uh, are working with uh, the capitalist state to protect uh, white people and their money. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't, man, <laughs> you really get right down to let's, it. Let's, I, I don't have time for metaphors. You no, know, there's no there's no messing around on Hari and Company. <laughs> Hari oh. and Company! <laughs> From First Look Media and Panoply, this is Politically Reactive. I'm Debbie Kamal Bell. And I'm former Crown Prince of Zamunda, Hari Kundabolu. You are not a king. I know that. The show where two comedians try to make sense of politics in America. Which is impossible, which is why this podcast may go on forever. On today's show, we're talking to our friend, Lindy West. I mean, she's really my friend, but, you know, she likes you. That's cool. Jesus Christ. Lindy is currently a columnist for The Guardian, but her writing has appeared in Jezebel, The Stranger, The New York Times, and she has the greatest episode of This American Life of all time, period. I truly am sorry about that. Well, you know, I get abuse all day, every day, and (laughs) this was the meanest thing anyone's ever done to me. Um, But you're also, you're the only, only troll who's ever apologized. Not just to me. I've never heard of this happening before. By calling the troll episode the best, I have trolled the trolls. Your move, trolls. Lindy is also a hilarious comedy writer who writes about feminism, social justice, body image, and humor. And also, she's one of my best friends. And Lindy has an amazing new book out called Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman. And I mentioned in it. And uh, so was Kamau. On today's show, Lindy will tell us about intersectional feminism, what it is, and why it is essential for white feminists to practice. We'll also talk about the portrayal of female politicians in the media, which might only be slightly better than female athletes. And there's the guy responsible for turning Katinka Hotsu, his wife, into a whole different swimmer. What the f***? We'll also discuss how pop culture in the 80s and early 90s was really creepy, like Christian Slater in Untamed Heart. I want you to sleep sometimes. Oh my God, so romantic. Jesus Christ. I love Marissa Tomei too, Christian. It's all coming up on Politically Reactive. Hey, what's up, Hurry? Oh, you know, I'm just recording a podcast with you right now. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> oh then you're busy. That's what's I'll, going on. I'll call you back later. <laughs> yeah, let's talk later. I, I'm too busy talking to you right now. Yeah. So last week, people seemed to really dig the Dave Zirin episode, talking about the intersection of sports and politics. Yeah, it was very exciting. I was getting all these texts from people saying, like, man, this this sports you talk about is really exciting. Where can I purchase some sports? <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna have to check out some sport. Uh <laughs> And now, it's funny, because we did that episode last week, and then, just to prove that sports and politics does intersect, Colin Kaepernick, a quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, demonstrated it by refusing to stand for the national anthem during a preseason game of the 49ers against the Green Bay Packers. And the uh, internet went nuts. Yeah, they were just they gave him so much crap for for using his First Amendment rights for for standing up for his beliefs, actually sitting down for his beliefs, and it's amazing. It's amazing how people say they love Muhammad Ali and he stood for something, and as soon as a contemporary athlete does the same thing, stands for for justice, you know, they're treated like crap. 
So after the game, uh, the media asked him what happened, and here's what he said. I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. There are bodies in the street, and people are getting paid leave and getting away with murder. Damn, that's like a public enemy song from the 90s. Man, it, this is a, a professional football player in 2016 saying this. Not me and Kamau dressed up as a football player. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's like he, he sprinkled some 1968 on his 2016. <laughs> really, I mean, really incredible. And of course, he took crap for that, even though that statement is so eloquent. He took crap. People were saying, oh, you're insulting the military, the people who served. As if, like... There weren't assholes who also stand for the national anthem. You know, the national anthem doesn't mean anything. And and, and as many people have pointed out, like the the singing the anthem at the game started out as a publicity stunt. Like it was, yes. a, it was, it was, it was started as a way to sort of get people to get engaged with baseball. And the other thing about this is that the third verse of the national anthem. So very racist. It's about slaves. They he, they talk about how, like, you know, not a slave was spared and it was a pro-slavery reference. Yeah, but you know my favorite thing about this whole Colin Kaepernick thing? What? His afro. Clearly, over the summer, he worked out on sit-ups, push-ups, and his afro. Was he listening to, like, uh, the audio tape of Roots while he was working out? Like, <laughs> what? What happened? This is incredible. <laughs> that afro said, I did more this summer than go to the beach and play Madden. I was reading some books. That's a book-reading afro. So after people gave him crap, like, he clarified his statements. What would you like this, you know, to be the end game for you? That's basically. I mean, ultimately, it's to bring awareness and make people... You know, realize what's really going on in this country. There are a lot of things that are going on that are unjust. People aren't being held accountable for. And that's something that needs to change. That's something that, you know, this country stands for freedom, liberty, justice for all. And it's not happening for all right now. Will you continue to sit? Yes, I'll continue to sit. I'm going to continue to stand with the people that are being oppressed. Uh, to me, this is something that has to change. And when there's significant change, and I feel like that flag represents what it's supposed to represent, and this country is representing people the way that it's supposed to, I'll stand. Oh, that's incredible. Yes. Yeah, so Just Col- like, I, I'm still chills over it. Yeah, so Colin Kaepernick, we stand with you. And I'll buy your jersey, although I think I'm too old to wear a sports jersey. But I'll do what I can. And also, if you want to discuss this further, Kamau and I have a podcast that we're recording right now that you could be a part of. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Hey, and it, I live in the Bay Area, Colin. You could just come right on by. Oh, man, what a coincidence. This has worked out perfectly. This is perfect. But we got a lot more show than just talking about sports this week. Uh, we have friend of both of us, friend of both of us, Lindy West. Fine. Fine. Yes. She's our friend. This was recorded while you, Hari, were in Seattle, hanging out with Lindy and being in your happy place. Oh, I love Seattle. Oh. Just some stuff before we get started. Uh, Lindy talks about a police bunker that the city of Seattle is, I guess, wants to build. Uh, just to give you some background on this, the city of Seattle wants to build a new precinct station. A lot of residents are unhappy with how expensive it is. It was initially going to cost $89 million. Then it went up to $160 million, And now it's been shaved down to $149 million. All because people are afraid of black people. <laughs> I thought your city was perfect. I thought Seattle was the perfect place, Harry. Well, I mean, I, I don't... I, I, stop it. Yeah. Stop confusing me. Yeah, everything's the worst. And also, in this episode, we talk a lot about intersectional feminism and how uh, white female feminists can be better feminists and, and include women of color in feminism. 
And so, obviously, uh, you'll be like, well, why aren't you talking about what happened with Leslie Jones? This was recorded before the situation that went with Le- Leslie Jones, uh, which the situation was that some hackers hacked Leslie Jones's website. Her website was hacked. Uh, personal information was put on her website in lieu of her bio. And there were several unflattering pictures. Actually, I don't know. I didn't actually go to the website, and the website has since been pulled down. But since then, Leslie Jones has not been on social media. I mean, it's incredible that we're talking about intersectionality this week because this is a great example of how racism and sexism meet at a point and how much damage can be caused. I mean, Leslie Jones has busted her butt to get into this position as a star. That is not an easy road Mm -mm. for her to go on as a black woman, brilliant comedian. And all of a sudden she gets her you know, her big chance the last few years, and she's been incredible, and people love her, and this has to happen. Yeah, and it's also just, it's just such a bummer because she should be having the greatest year of her life because yes. she's become a breakout star from Saturday Night Live. She is in the reboot of Ghostbusters. She's got a national commercial. Yes. And she got to go to the Olympics based on the strength of her tweets and Snapchats about the Olympics. I mean, she should be, like, having the greatest year of her life. But this was the second time this year she's been attacked on the Internet over nonsense. The other thing about the Leslie Jones situation, which is so maddening, and that's why this discussion with Lindy is is important, is that Lindy West makes it a point to go out and sort of speak truth to power and to really sort of, like, you know, she sort of, we talk about this later in the episode, that she sort of knows when she's putting something out in the world that's going to uh, get the ire of trolls. Yeah. Whereas Leslie Jones is a comedian. She's just being herself. You know, she's not like actively going out there making big political statements. She's just being funny. You know what I mean? And yet for the crime of being black and a female in public, she's been attacked. Yeah. No, it's, it's really disgusting. And uh, it's unfortunate that we weren't able to talk to Lindy now about it, but we wanted to make sure we covered it because, you know, it's an important story to us. Yeah. Anyway, let's go to Hari and Lindy in his favorite place of Seattle. Kamal's also there. Lindy, how's it going? Great. Great. How are you? I'm doing okay. How's Seattle? Uh, uh, it's hot. Yeah. And uh, they're building a, a billion dollar police bunker. It's not really a billion dollars, but it's like $140 million or something. It's weird how they started out building all this stuff after Amazon moved here and there's been mass gentrification. Hmm. Interesting. Huh. Fascinating. Now the police need a bunker. Huh. It's, it's almost like the police uh, are working with uh, the capitalist state to protect uh, white people and their money. <laughs> Yes. I don't, man, I, you really get right down to let's, it. Let's, I, I don't have time for metaphors. You no, know, there's no there's no messing around on Hari and Company. <laughs> Hari oh. and Company! <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a unique name, Lindy. Hari and Company. Maybe we should call the show that from now on. Somebody, have you been actually talking about that enough that she knew it as a reference? <laughs> that's, well, that's what that tells me. What I've been getting messages on Twitter with people who are just trying to egg it on by like, I love Kamau and Company. I'm like, oh, you stop it. Stop it. <laughs> no, he he uh, he, he seeded me early yep. with the Hari and Company joke. I feel like I delivered it in an awkward way, but that's fine. Um, he he sent me a text about it. Yep. He also brought it up multiple times in the car on the way here and at the <laughs> coffee shop. Yep. Make sure make sure you don't forget to say Hari and Company. Then when we sat down in the studio, he he said just before we started, he said Hari and Company, Hari and Company. And then, and then he wrote it on a piece of paper and slipped it across to you yep. like a used car salesman. <laughs> yeah, he hired this a skywriter. Final, it's my final mm-hmm. offer. Yep. I, wa- I wanted to make sure I stack the deck. <laughs> Uh, so I'm just going to open this right up. 
Lindy, who are you voting for? I'm I'm voting for Hillary Clinton. Ooh. I know, controversial. Wow. I know. Uh, who are you voting for? <laughs> Why? No, I'm asking you questions. Don't ask me questions. What? Okay. <laughs> well, are you voting for Jill Stein? Are you writing in <laughs> Hari and Company? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. No, I'm voting for Hillary. I'm eagerly voting for Hillary. I cannot wait to vote for Hillary. It's going to feel great. Now, I can't wait. Is there a percentage of voting for Hillary that is the that is you're eager to vote for Hillary because it's an anti-Trump vote, or is it just a, or is it like Hillary versus the world? Like uh, no, I mean, who's that rapper who has like like Cleveland versus everybody? Is this Hillary versus everybody? I mean, it's complicated, right? Like, obviously, Hillary has said and done some things that are uh, that run counter to my entire being, but also, I mean, Hillary's a politician. Hillary had to swim through tar to get here, and is treated like garbage. And you know, I I have. And I, I mean, it's just complicated. Like there are things that I that I truly adore about Hillary. And it's it's one of those things is that she reminds me of my mom, <laughs> which is like a, a white lady thing to say. You know, like I understand that I have like wh- white lady steak in Hillary. But man, she's just kind of like hardcore uh, and awkward and adorable in the way that my mom is. Um, but all of that is irrelevant to who should be the president. If that was my criteria, I guess my, my mom should be the president. <laughs> She's the most like my mom. But no, you know, it's complicated. I don't know. She voted for the Iraq war just like your mom did. Yeah, right. (laughs) No, and it's right. So stuff like that's hard. But also, I just I keep coming back to the fact that um, I don't know what it is that we're demanding of people if it's not to change and then be better. You know, if, if Hillary is saying and I don't know how extensively she has gone into like, yes, I was wrong to call black people super predators. I was wrong to vote for the Iraq war. I don't know the extent of her remorse and backtracking on some of these issues. But it seems to be the the line is that, that yeah, people change and people's policies evolve. And, and, and that seems to be what we're fighting for when we have this discourse. Well, um, to, well, to me, she's like a pure politician. Everything she does is a very calculated move. And if something is popular, she'll go with that. You know, that's I, I yeah. really do believe it. But then the question, which these are not things I think are positive, but at the same time, that's every politician other than Trump who's a maniac. Right. Like, <laughs> like, are we saying this about John? Do we say this about John Kerry? Do we say this about Obama in the same way? Obama didn't have much, like a track record, neither really did Sanders because Mayor of Burlington... <laughs> It's like Mary McCheese, really. There's no, like, (laughs) you're not going to have a track record. Hold up. Wait a minute. And a note to our listeners. Despite what my co-host said about Bernie Mayor McCheese Sanders, last week Bernie Sanders announced a new organization called Our Revolution, which aims to raise political consciousness and support progressive politics and leaders across the country. Are you trying to undercut me, my dude? I'm not afraid of you or your coat factory, Burlington. Bring it, Burlington. It feels like she's a woman in politics playing the game of politics. So she's dirty at the end of it. But at the same time, it's between her and a maniac. It was probably decades ago when I was still a child that I let go of the fiction that there are any successful politicians who aren't monsters. You know, I think when I was really little, I was like, the president is a hero. And then once you become sentient, you're like, oh, no. Oh, it's like a massive game of money and conniving and 
and death and terror. <laughs> what, like, like one of the jobs of every president is to kill kids in other countries. Yeah. Like you have to make that choice. So when you vote for president, it's it's really about who will make you feel best about killing kids in other countries. Uh... Well, that's a joke, guys. <laughs> did, that, did that not read as a joke? It felt like a joke. Uh, Hari and company. <laughs> No, you know, uh, so I I I vote for Hillary Clinton without reservation. I mean, to the extent that I vote for any any politician roughly aligned with my politics without reservation. You know, I, I obviously we can't have Donald Trump be the president. And it's going to be amazing when he loses like just so explosively and dramatically and like a pathetic little wet hair covered turd. Do you know what I'd like to see? I'd like to see Hillary win and then immediately divorce Bill. Yeah. That would be amazing. Like the whole thing Except was just <laughs> We gotta stop treating our politics like it's a soap opera. So hurry. Yeah. You know how Lindy is saying we gotta stop treating politics like it's a soap opera? Yes. I got five words for you. The return of Anthony Weiner. How, the, how 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 do how do we do that though when it's a soap opera? Like I, I watched this season of House of Cards, and I was like, reality has gone faster than you guys. Like it's like this yeah. this season of House of Cards was okay. It wasn't as good as this season of the presidential election. <laughs> I I don't know if you can walk it back. It's it's kind of scary. But like when you look at the you know TV ads for the debates and stuff, it's like Hillary. Like it it looks like a pro wrestling commercial right. <laughs> and it's which is just a soap opera i mean i'm i'm the last person to call for propriety and you know civility because <laughs> i like people who are uncivil and disgusting but uh, you do want you want a little bit of like dignity in your politics not just because not just for for optics but because i think that it's detrimental to us as a country to treat politics is entertainment because then you end up with Donald Trump as yeah. the Republican nominee. I but here's my question when you say we shouldn't look at politics as as a soap opera. Like I was at the DNC for a day, me and Hari were there with politically reactive and me and Melissa sat and watched Clinton Bill Clinton speak and it was like a room full of people who were all sitting there watching him speak for whatever it was 45 minutes whatever it was. And you couldn't help but think about the history of their relationship because he told the history of their relationship. Yeah. So it was a room full of people going, is he going to say it? <laughs> is he going to say it? It's like, like he skipped the we... 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it was like, and then I was president and then she was secretary of state. And that brings us to today, everybody. <laughs> 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 Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, it just, and so I, I, I think specifically with the Clintons, it's hard to like, tease their personal life apart from their professional sure. life in a way that with Obama, we met him as the, we all, basically most people met him as the candidate running for president. And it was like, there was no history of anything before that other than that yeah. one speech at the DNC. Yeah. You know, you, you talk a lot about being intersectional as a feminist and you also critique white feminism. And I've always appreciated both of those things. Can you explain what intersectionality means and also like what white feminism is because some people hear that and you know immediately are like why did why did he say white right so. yeah i mean p white people hate it when you say white yeah that's <laughs> white. i don't know why but um 
basically, uh, white feminism is it's the centering of white women's issues, solving those problems and then declaring victory and saying, oh, look, fe- feminism is achieved. Like when people sorry. like when people say like so. OK, so some big white feminist outcries have been lean in the lean in book, right? Uh, which it's a book written by Sheryl Sandberg who argued that women in the corporate world and I think by extension, you know, out in all kinds of fields need to be more assertive and need to ask for raises and need to lean in to their careers and not let themselves be railroaded by men. You know, you need to start being proactive and asking for what you want, which is just irrelevant to, first of all, people who are not working in corporate America, who are, who, you know, people, there are plenty of people who don't have any access to that world at all. And then there yeah, are also- First you got to get in before you lean in. Before, exactly. <laughs> and then there are a lot of people like black women, for instance, for whom that kind of assertiveness is read as aggressiveness and is is really stigmatized and it doesn't work the same way. It doesn't work the same way for black women to lean in as it does for white women to lean in. What looks as passion, what looks like anger. Yeah, and people stigmatize black anger, especially black women's anger. And and so it's so intersectional feminism means you you pay attention to that. I mean just just Keep in mind that you're not the only person in the world. And and yet how much of your Twitter is devoted to like white feminists not getting that? Like I still see online when I look at Twitter, women of color explaining to white feminists that oh, yeah. white feminism doesn't support women of color. Oh yeah. I mean, I'll see you know. Oh yeah, it's been like a, a hundred years. <laughs> I mean, it's because white people are not taught to listen. You know? You're like <laughs> when you spend your whole life. I mean, this is why media representation is so important to me. I mean, the fact that that I mean, and, and it's getting better, but that so many white kids can grow up only being around white people and only seeing white people in positions of authority and only seeing white people speaking with authority on TV and having their lives represented and their experiences represented. I mean, that makes you feel like, oh, I must be the authority on the world. Uh, and, you know, it's different for women because, you know, women's credibility is constantly undermined but there's still i mean white women are still white obviously and and you absorb that you absorb that and so yeah i mean and it's i i remember this i feel like this is going to sound bad but i remember this really really formative moment for me where i realized that there are some black women who are never going to like me hmm. and i was like that's not fair <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, and then I was like, what, what, uh, fucking, of course it's fair. <laughs> yeah, the, like, so what if I'm a nice lady? You know, <laughs> like I'm a, I'm a, a beneficiary of centuries of torture and and horror and degradation and oppression, and then I win. You know what I mean? Like it's, I, and I, I had this moment where I realized that like that resentment is completely logical and completely valid. Does our, that make sense? Do I sound? Does that sound shitty? No, it totally <laughs> makes sense. And also, like our our shared friend Guy Branham, who used to write on Totally Biased, yeah. uh, with me for Kamau's show, has a great joke. Here's one thing I've never really understood about black people: <laughs> why haven't they killed us in our sleep yet? <laughs> but basically, the joke is that white people should be thankful every single day that black people don't kill them in their sleep. Yeah. To make up for what they did. 
<laughs> and I feel like, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it exactly that way, but there is that like. Oh, I would, sir. Oh, I would. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you I would. Preach, guy, preach. <laughs> my, my, um, I was talking to my, my personal trainer, Bull, who's amazing, um, who grew up in Mississippi, and we were talking about racism. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, you know, when white people are, are scared of me or are rude to me, I'm like, man. I understand why I would be mad at you. Well, why are you mad at me? (laughs) Why are white people mad at black people? What did black people do? You know, like just thinking historically in this country. He's like, I have so many reasons to be mad at you guys. And it really is kind of it's kind of bizarre that white people think they have any grounds uh, to be to be angry at black people. But white people are so angry at black people that they're. That they're trying to elect Donald Trump, right? <laughs> I mean, it was just really, in my opinion, all that's behind it. It's just racism. Yeah, they're just so mad that Barack Obama was president for eight years and did a good job. I don't know. Well, I think for some for some white people, I think, and this is the thing that Donald Trump has pulled out of white people, and this is true. There's some some white people have this on the surface, and some white people have this d- buried deep inside of them. The, the history of this country is of poor treatment of black people, and lots of people of color, but with black people, it's like. There is this sense of like, wait a minute, we used to own you, and now you're standing in front of me at Starbucks. Wait, I don't get how this all works. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just this sense of like, I don't. How did like as if your dog one day like, wait, my dog got the job I applied for. Oh I don't, what happened? <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> I love my dog, but I don't think he should have a job that I applied for. And I think that with some white people, that stuff is right on the surface; they can access it, like you know, Trump voters. And with some white people on the left, they don't know how to put that into words, or they're afraid to put that into words. But it's still the same thing. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I laughed really hard because it was funny, because it also hurt. <laughs> <laughs> also, I don't think they love their metaphorical dog. Right. It's like if but you had a dog they that love you their hated. metaphorical dog. Yeah, well, it's a dog that you like chain outside and leave outside, and you feed him scraps, and you don't give him good dog food, but you say you love your dog. It's that dog. Mm-hmm. It's it's a southern dog, as I would say. <laughs> it's my grandma's dog. Oh. It's my grandma. <laughs> uh, Linda, you recently um, you recently wrote a, a couple of articles just about how the press covers female politicians as well as female uh, Olympians. We're in the middle of the Olympics right now as we record this, and of course, it's an election year. What what was the the gist of those articles? How what are people doing wrong when they're covering female? politicians, female Olympians? Yeah, I, well, I've learned a lot uh, from the coverage of these Olympics, such as um, how many amazing male coaches just created gold medals out of nothing. <laughs> no, I mean, it's uh, and there's a lot of um, <laughs> there's a lot of hot bodies in tight outfits, apparently competing in the Olympics. Now, I don't know. I mean, all the coverage is just like is like hot sex thing does a sport i guess (laughs) (laughs) question mark or so it's all like just talking about the the athletes bodies or did they do a good job on their hair uh did they smile enough did they thank their coach enough did they thank their fans it's all just about like women's decorum and their bodies and how great their male coaches are and uh there's all this there's tons of focus on you know, the female athletes' personal lives. I mean, and the, which is the same way we talk about politicians. Oh, what shoes did Hillary wear? Who fucking cares? Just talk about women like they're human beings. These are athletes who've worked their entire lives to be the best in the world at a thing that's really hard. And then you want to talk about their makeup? It's 
fucked up, man. And after, so after this column came out, which was very mild, it was like, hello, if you are a sports writer, how about writing about sports? <laughs> you know, how about you write about the sports? You get the idea that that women can't have credit for their own accomplishments because they they they're not responsible for their own accomplishments and they're really there as as decoration that sometimes surprises us by being mildly competent that's the that's the vibe well, that i get from the world to be to be fair lindy uh women were created from man's rib that's true according to the bible so let's not <laughs> let's not go crazy here another thing i want to talk about before we move on and i kind of am curious about you guys's take on this I also have had a bunch of jackasses tweet at me about the objectification of men because huh. I talked about the objectification of women in this article. And they're like, yeah, but I saw a BuzzFeed listicle about the American swim team's abs. Therefore, men are oppressed and objectification is great or something. Well, and feminists are hypocrites. Well, what do you, first, how well, do you guys first, feel about objectification? Well, first of all, I love being objectified. <laughs> It is pretty great. Yeah. And uh, as long as it doesn't have that weird racial element yeah. to it, like I, as long as it's like, oh, you're really handsome. I like your hair. I'm cool with it. Well, because the thing is that, first of all, I do think that there can be a, I think there is a racial element of objectification. Yeah. I'm not convinced that white men can be objectified because there's something. Well, they're the ones using the objects. Yeah. And there's a, like, I feel like inherent to objectification is the... The, you know, you're stripping away someone's humanity and it's impossible to ever forget about white dudes humanity because they 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 won't stop whining about it. <laughs> I mean, like the reason that feminists care about the objectification of women is not because like I'm really mad that some people are sexually attracted to other people or something. It's it's because women's bodies supersede our accomplishments and objectification makes women unsafe like it, it affects our safety i feel like this segues really neatly into uh something that is terrible there have been a, a lot of stories uh i was gonna say recently but kind of throughout time of uh men raping women going to court getting away with it recently there was there's no prison for a college student who raped a help a helpless freshman hold up wait a minute yeah so i didn't really describe that case very well so Austin Wilkerson, who's 22 years old and went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, raped a semi-conscious woman who was in her first year at the university. Now, he was facing four years to life, but was sentenced to two years on work release and 20 years probation. Also, hurry, another breaking horrible news. Brock Turner, the Stanford student who sexually assaulted a woman behind a dumpster, is scheduled to be released from jail on Friday after only serving half of his six-month sentence. Thanks for that update, Kamau. No problem. Back to the show. And it's just like, that is just becoming the norm. So when you talk about objectification and you discuss rape culture, to me it's obvious that these things are, are, are connected, that, that not valuing women and their bodies leads to men doing things like that. But can you discuss rape culture more? Because a lot of people don't understand it. They don't get it. They definitely think uh, people are being too sensitive because that's the excuse for everything. So. Yeah. I mean, when I say that objectification impacts women's safety, that's exactly what I mean. Um, when you teach people, men and women, that 
you know, when a, when a woman is the prize at the end of every movie, the I mean, the entirety of the 80s was just comedies about men figuring out ways to get women unconscious so that they can have sex Ugh. with them. Romantic comedies are so often like about creepy stalking behaviors. Mm. And what you teach people is that that women are a thing that you win and that you're entitled to get the hottest possible woman and then you win it's a contest with other men there's just not a lot of room for for women to to say no and to reject you because if women reject you then you just need to keep trying you need to keep trying to persuade them you need to follow them around you need to do romantic grand gestures that are actually creepy and horrifying and or you need to, you know, become a pickup artist and learn seduction tips mm. where you which is just that hitch. <laughs> I haven't seen it. I haven't but, seen Hitch and ever talks about Hitch. That's probably what that's about. Yeah. No, but no, you know, that's, like, that's a, yeah, Will, Will Smith plays this, uh, a pickup artist, but the the most handsome, charismatic pickup artist of all time. And uh, that, he that's helps, not what uh, they're like in real life. He, and he helps uh, uh, the guy from King of Queens, uh, Kevin. <laughs> uh, Kevin James. What's his name? Kevin James. Yeah, yeah. He helps. He helps Kevin James uh, get. Uh, is it Eva Mendez? It's something ridiculous. I think it is Eva <laughs> Mendez. But then doesn't she end up with Hitch? Surely yeah, she's. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was yes. before they had interracial relationships in movies. That's why that's kind of a groundbreaking because it's two minorities of a different like group. Oh, really? I, I think it's pretty great. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Can't think of any. It's in the history there. books. There's not that Hitch? many. I mean, the Mississippi Masala. There's only a handful, I think. Yeah. But yeah. but to be fair, Harry, to a lot of white people, Eva Mendez is black just because there's not like. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it's like you know, it's that thing where a lot of white people aren't really counting that as two different races. I don't. Th- white people don't care if two non-white people are right. different races. Right. White people, and I'm talking about racist white people. Well, I guess which is most all white people. Okay, whatever. Uh, yeah, when white people are like outraged about inter- interracial relationships, that's white people being with someone who's not white. They don't care what like not white people do amongst themselves. I don't think. I think you know it's. Fun. I, I think about the romantic comedies and romance films uh, thing a lot in terms of how it brainwashed me to view love and dating a certain way. Even in one of my favorite romantic films, Untamed Heart, starring Christian Slater and Marissa Tomei, he, even though he has a baboon's heart, he thinks, but it's a heart defect. Anyway, this is besides the point, but he follows her home every day to make sure she's safe. But it's still him following her home every day. And there's a scene where he, like, which is a very upsetting scene, where he prevents her rape. Again, but it's that whole hero complex of like I have to protect her from from this, and, and still he's following her home every day. Yeah, there's also a scene where uh, he sneaks into her room to put a a, a Christmas tree in her room, <sighs> and another and another scene where he admits that he sneaks into her room to watch her sleep. What? Yet when I watch this film. None of this seemed weird at the time. <laughs> I no, know. It all seemed perfectly reasonable. I, a lot of stuff didn't seem weird at the time in the 80s, I know. But, um, I, I, yeah, so there's that aspect of rape culture. Um, there's also the aspect uh, where when women are raped, we, like when we talk about rape prevention, it's always telling women what women should do to avoid rape, not t- teaching men to respect women's autonomy, uh, to respect... <laughs> Well, I don't, yeah, saying rape, rape, rape prevention. Just be like, hey guys, don't rape. Yeah, right. I mean, which yeah. is a which is complicated because you have to yeah. reorient your entire culture and um, fight objectification and some of these things that are less fun. Um, it's easier to just photocopy a list that's like, don't wear low cut tops. 
don't walk home alone unless Christian Slater is following you. Don't drink. Don't go places by yourself. I mean, it's just basically. The Christian Slater thing is in every list, though. <laughs> it's a, I mean, that's a good tip. If you do have access to a, a Christian Slater who wants to follow you around and protect you okay. and you're comfortable with that, that's it, that's fine with me. But, yeah, you know, uh, we, we place the responsibility to prevent rape on rape victims. Then we blame rape victims for being raped, for not doing a good enough job of preventing their own rapes. We use that in court to discredit them and to to get their rapists off the hook. Uh, and then we we call them liars and we shame and torment them for the rest of their lives. And then their rapists can go rape other people. And this is why I'm teaching my daughter how to use knives. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, wouldn't it be nice if your daughter could grow up not having to carry knives? <laughs> Like that's yeah, the, that's and also the dream. she should know how to use a knife. Like, <laughs> even in that perfect world, you still. I'm just. I mean, it's like to you know, even in that perfect world, I feel like I have to. You know, I mean, and, you know, I'm being silly about it, but I do feel like with my daughters, I'm very aware of the fact that, like, you know, I have to. I, I'm. Me and my friends are working hard to create a more perfect world for you. Also, here's how you use a knife. Like, I feel like <laughs> you, those two things go hand in hand. Yeah, you can do both. Uh, you can. Do yeah, both. you can do both. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, so. You famously went on This American Life and confronted an internet troll that you have. Mm -hmm. Has that stopped trolls from trolling you? (laughs) No. No. (laughs) They're not afraid you're going to put them on the Summer Jam screen? Uh, Uh, No. (laughs) No. I mean, I feel like it did sort of dampen it for a while just because that was such a powerful statement. Like, the guy was so candid and so... He was so candid about how pathetic his life was. Like, basically, he was like, yeah, I trolled you because I had nothing going on. I had nothing to live for. I was lonely. I hated myself. And everything about me was a failure. And so then after that came out, uh, any troll any troll who came after me for the next couple of months was just self-identifying as a loser, you know, because the, the, the piece was so clear that th- that happy, well-adjusted people don't do this. And so then if people wanted to come after me and be like, yes, yes, I'm one of those people. I'm one of those failures, sad failures. Then it, it, it was very satisfying. Um, but they've, that's sort of, that only lasted a couple months and now they're back, but it's fine. And my, and so my follow up question is this is like, I, you know, I recently wrote a piece for CNN.com about how I thought Michael Phelps should hand his flag bearing duties to Ibtaj Muhammad. Uh, who's an Olympic fencer, black woman who fenced wearing hijab and wore, mm-hmm. wears hijab all the time and was wore hijab at the opening ceremonies that she does. And I didn't even realize what I was wading into, but I waded into a bunch of white people who were like, you're racist for saying that the best Olympian, race, blah, blah, blah. And it like for a week after the opening ceremonies happened, I was still opening my Twitter to like Ugh. the most uh, crazy p- p- parts of the internet. Now the difference is nobody threatened to rape me in that whole time. <laughs> like oh, not one person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it did make me go like it. It's sort of like there's this part of where you go. I want to sort of like sit here and spend the next week going in on all these people to get it out of my system, or I want to be a better person and not go in. I and mean, you sort of, I sort of ended up somewhere in the middle. But also, like, it, it does make me go. The next time I write something, it's just like sort of like. I didn't even know that was a big opinion. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't even oh, aware. Yeah. Like, do you do you ever have that feeling? Like, you just wrote a thing for the New York Times about Trump fans. Like, you knew writing that you had to know. Here comes my mentions on Twitter. Do you ever feel like not writing stuff because you know what's going to happen? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, and I and I fight that because I don't think that's good for the, 
you know, for my career or for the world. Like, I think it's important to to not let yourself be muzzled by these people who are trying to get you to shut up. So shutting up feels like the wrong response. But yeah, I mean, it's just exhausting. I You, you can't... When you express a completely innocuous opinion, uh, like, God forbid a white guy doesn't get to do everything. God forbid Michael Phelps not hold a flag one time. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's a totally... Like, it's not even a real thing. It's just a ceremony that we made up. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's just like a made up thing where someone holds a flag. I don't know. It just makes me, it's just infuriating. To play sports nobody well, that, cares well, about. Yeah, sports aren't real. I mean, what? <laughs> I didn't say all sports. <laughs> what sports do you care about? Uh, baseball, baseball is real, right, Harry? Yeah. Yeah. Baseball is real. Basketball, <laughs> football, a lot of injuries. Those are real injuries. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I'm just saying, uh, I mean, it's, uh, obviously it's real, but you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it no, doesn't have not, inherent. It's not, inherent significance it's just it's a ritual that we made up and sometimes making space for other people is is valuable i mean that's arguably the only valuable thing you could do with this opportunity i don't know but you know i i do feel myself uh spending i I spend less and less time on twitter i i've been thinking lately does this actually benefit me in any way or is it just a machine that i put good jokes into for free Hmm. i just i just like come up with funny jokes and then i type them into twitter and publish them and i get nothing except for (laughs) except for hate and garbage but you've talked about it in in your in your fantastic book shrill um (laughs) the i'm shilling shrill available now you talk about the importance of of going after trolls and and discussing these things uh, because you say it does matter. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm kind of surprised to hear you say that just because like that was a big part of the book. The idea that like when people say, why don't you just ignore the the Internet? Why don't you just ignore it? It's not real to you and to a lot of people. It is real. Could you explain that? a little bit? Yeah. No, I mean, and I and I still do think it's important. I, I just mean, like, for me, I'm getting I'm getting older and I'm getting tired. Right. Right. And and like I have. My my career is no longer just confined to the Internet, so I don't need to be on Twitter every day. And, and that's been nice for me <laughs> um, to, to just sort of back away from that. But um, I think that uh, I think that the Internet, social media is a really powerful tool for giving a voice to people who otherwise haven't, you know, historically haven't had a, a voice in mainstream discourse like on Twitter. Any person can reach out directly to famous people, politicians, athletes, uh, people in positions of power and tell them exactly how they feel. And people love to disparage this as though it Mm. as though it doesn't matter. And I really think that it does. Like, it's easy to scoff at slacktivism or hashtag activism. But I, I mean, these ideas get out there. Ten years ago, I don't think that I don't think that the general public was and by that I mean, you know, white people in general were aware that there was that you shouldn't wear blackface on Halloween. <laughs> and that if you did, if you did, there was no mechanism for you getting yelled at. You know what I mean? <laughs> and now and now other people, than your black friend who was like, God damn it. Right. Okay. Even if they don't understand why they shouldn't do it, they still are aware that they shouldn't do it. Um, so for that reason. I think it's important that we don't just let assholes run roughshod over social media. And that's why I think that 
you know, uh, I don't think that trolling is something that the victims of trolling should be in charge of fixing much. I mean, it's kind of like similar. It's kind of similar to rape culture where we tell people like, oh, just oh, just close your laptop. Just turn turn Twitter off. That is not a real solution because the goal of Internet trolling, especially when you're talking about people who spend all their time trolling social justice movements, um, is to shut those people up, to waste their time, to distract them, to stop them from doing their work. So when you say, oh, the solution to this problem is you doing more work, uh, that's Mm. just contributing to the problem. So what I would like to see is is social media companies having a, a coherent and proactively progressive terms of service that doesn't allow hate speech and mass silencing campaigns. Lindy, thank you uh, for, for joining us. Uh, people should buy Shrill, your book, which is fantastic. Also, uh, I just want to say how much I love you. Aww. You're one of my best friends. Aww. You're an inspiration. And you know, every time I've gotten a death threat or something on the internet and it kind of bums me out, like, oh, here's a gun and a guy's telling me to eat a bullet and he's going to find me, I think about the fact that, oh, that's only the first one I've gotten this month and that's like every day for you. It's not every day. Well, it was every day for it a while. It was every day for a while. There you I, go. <laughs> when I used to write about comedy, it yeah, was every day. It was every day. Aw. But, um, you know, I, 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 it just, uh, you're, you're always, uh, you always inspire me. And also, we're good friends and you're married to my writing partner and, and one of my uh, best friends, Ahamefile J. Aluo. And I think it's fair to say he's, you know, he's the ma- man responsible for all this. He's the man behind everything. <laughs> and you owe it all to, to it's Aham. It's true. It's yeah. true. Yeah. And I looked great in my wedding dress. And um, and actually, I was going to say, uh, I think you were arguably the star of our wedding video. That's what I wanted. <laughs> That's how I do things. Thank you so much, Lily. You're the thank best. You, thank you so much for having me uh, on Hari and Company. I and love it. I love it. I'm sorry, Kamau. That's all right. I think he gets he can get one every now and again. So. <laughs> so hurry. What did we learn today? We learned that Lindy West will help me with my revenge plots. Hurry and company. A reference to the Van Jones episode. <laughs> Van Jones still doesn't know who I am. I learned that white people have to be okay with black people not liking them. I learned that white feminists don't always know that it's not about them. I learned that Lindy doesn't think sports are real. I learned that we have to stop treating politics like a soap opera unless the soap opera is called Dick Picks of Our Lives. (laughs) I've learned that I should delete my Twitter account. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for today's show. Thanks to all who have commented on Twitter using the hashtag Politically Reactive. We've gotten some good feedback and some good show ideas. We'll address some of your questions soon, so keep them coming. And if you haven't done so, hit that subscribe button on whatever you're using to listen to this podcast right now. And maybe think about leaving us a nice little review. It's a very helpful way to spread the word for new shows like ours. And if you're loving us, check out some of our other projects. I have a new album out now on Kill Rockstars called Mainstream American Comic. You can get that everywhere. Uh, also, I'll be touring and doing shows in San Francisco at Cobb's Comedy Club on September 22nd to the 24th. And I'll be in Houston on October 22nd and Dallas on October 23rd. You can find more information on hurrykundabolu.com or more realistically on Google. 
And I've got other projects going on, like my podcast, Denzel Washington is the Greatest Actor of All Time, period. My live radio show and podcast come out right now. And I have a new album coming out, too. It's called Semi-Prominent Negro, and it's also from Kill Rock Stars. You can pre-order the album now. It comes out September 30th. Go to killrockstars.com to check it out. Also, i got some shows coming up. I'll be in Boston, New York, Washington, D.C., Portland. I'm doing a ton of college shows. Check out my sites for all the dates, wkamalbell.com. Politically Reactive is a production of First Look Media and distributed by Panoply. The team includes Nick Borenstein, Lisa Langang, Erica Moo, and Max Jacobs. The show is engineered by Ted Muldoon. Thanks again to Lindy West for joining us today. Be sure to pick up a copy of her book, Shrill, Notes from a Loud Woman, and read her column in The Guardian, and check out her website, lindywest.net. That's L-I-N-D-Y-W-E-S-T dot net. Also, check out Guy Branham's new album, Effable, and you can hear that joke we talked about to your heart's content. Thanks to Northgate Studios in Berkeley, Panoply Studios in Brooklyn, KUOW in Seattle, and KALW in San Francisco. And thanks to Brontes Purnell for providing music for the show.